Hello and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gallup, and typically on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. However, this is not your typical show, as it's a bonus episode, which in this case, we're going to be exploring the Paycheck Protection Program, since I'm sure it's on top of mind for many founders and investors. My guest to talk about this groundbreaking legislation is Zachary Deering, who is a JD candidate at Harvard Law School and Venture Fellow at Alicorp. Zachary has had a deep appreciation for startups and small businesses, starting when he was 12 when he founded and ran his own computer assembling business. He has gone on to have quite the career in consulting, finance, and technology. He also made a tool working alongside Alicorp for companies to understand how much government assistance they could expect to receive from PPP, which I've added as a link in the show notes. This episode is intended to help venture-backed small businesses understand some of the complexities when it comes to PPP. So without further ado, here's Zach. Zach, thank you so much for joining me today, especially on such short notice. How are you? I'm doing well, or as well as we can be in these times, but so far everyone's healthy, and and thanks for making the time to have me on. I really appreciate you taking the time. What is PPP? How did you become interested in learning about PPP? PPP is the Payroll Protection Program. It is a novel program that came about out of the CARES Act, which is the over $2 trillion stimulus bill that was passed by Congress in the end of March to respond to COVID-19 and to help brace the economy for it. SBA, for those who are perhaps not familiar, is the Small Business Administration. The SBA, there's a variety of different programs under the CARES Act that can help small businesses, and the Payroll Protection Program is, is one of them and is notably getting a lot of attention because of the potential value at stake there. The intent of the program is to help small businesses stay in business and specifically to help them maintain and keep their employees, which is why payroll and protection are in its name. The goal is to help provide loan that is ultimately forgivable if certain criteria are met to help small businesses keep paying their employees. For for me, the the interest came kind of from two two different parts. One, I have a lot of people in my orbit who have startups or small businesses, and so I was getting a lot of questions from from them and and generally just sort of angst about this money that the PPP program potentially makes available uh, could be helpful to them. And then two, I was specifically, I've been working with a uh, a New York-based venture capital firm called Alicorp, and so we were also getting a lot of questions coming from that side. And so that was a little bit of the impetus for me to, to dig into this and to understand or try to understand a little bit a little bit better about the program thank you who is the program intended for so it's intended for small businesses uh roughly with less than 500 employees who are based in america and who comply with a few other guidelines around that have been in operation since february 15 2020 that are conducting only legal businesses and that's legal at both a state and federal level. So one notable example would be a marijuana-related business or a dispensary. While it might be legal in California or Colorado, it's illegal federally, and so therefore they couldn't apply. 
Lastly, it's designed for businesses that have been impacted by the current economic uncertainty. And there's actually a specific certification commonly referred to as the good faith certification around necessity that they have to make. Thanks for the cannabis example. That certainly provides some color. What makes you eligible for PPP? So for for the payroll protection program, um, one, you have to be in place or in operation since February 15th. You have to be conducting business that is that is legal at the state, federal, and local level. You've had to be able to certify that you've been impacted uh, by the current economic uncertainty. You have to not have any sort of criminal backgrounds of the owners or applicants, as well as uh, specifically related to felons in a certain period of time, as well as you can't be delinquent on any SBA loans. And it ultimately has to be a U.S.-based business with U.S.-based employees. Got it. Thanks for that. I really appreciate it. So I wanted to dive in, probably the main main conversation, uh, and there's certainly been a lot of chatter on this on Twitter, about the affiliate rule. So I wanted to kind of first start out with what is the affiliate rule? The affiliate rule is a SBA rule that takes into consideration businesses that are linked together via a common owner or, or investor. And really, the, the affiliation role, as it's commonly referred to, has a few different sort of uh, ways by which an organization could be considered affiliate of another organization. I would say the most clear and bright, bright line role, which means that if this has been met, there is no way to refute it or no way to sort of appeal around it, is if the owner or investor has more than 50% voting rights, voting equity in the organization. If that's the case, then that that or that entity is an affiliate to the investor, and therefore any other organizations that the investor has that are also affiliates back to them would be considered sort of in commonality together. An additional way, and I think the way that we've seen a lot of talk in the blogosphere, is around sort of negative control rights. So the specific language says that if you can prevent a quorum at a shareholder meeting or board of directors, or if you have certain negative control rights, which is in the language of, of, of the underlying rules, block actions, then that can be considered negative control and can establish affiliation. What do we mean by sort of negative control rights and block actions? The two that I am commonly seeing among sort of VC-backed startups with investors is the ability to have a say or veto right over various sort of day-to-day um, operational decisions, in particular dividends and, and compensation. And so that is sort of one avenue by which affiliation could be established. There's a couple other avenues around sort of the management, which is the CEO president, as well as potentially if there's a family interest or a close family member in the same geographical area in the same industry, then those can also be considered affiliated organizations. So Zach, if a business is affiliated with another company, what does that mean? The affiliation roles come into play in the context of PPP because it changes the total number of employees that a company is considered to have. So if company A is affiliated with company B, when that business thinks about applying for PPP and thinks about the employee threshold of usually about 500 employees, they'd actually have to aggregate or sum up all of their own employees plus all of the employees in company B or any other affiliated organizations. What that could mean is maybe company A, the business applying for PPP, only has 450 employees. However, through an affiliated organization, they have an additional 500 employees. 
if that was the case, then they'd have to take all those employees into consideration and that could impact their eligibility. How can how, how can companies that maybe are VC back maybe change their governance terms uh, with VCs in order to become eligible? Have you been seeing or, or hearing about that happening? So if you're a company that might have negative control rights currently in your in your agreements with with an investor, the Treasury Department and the Small Business Administration has said that if you irrevocably or if you're your your shareholder irrevocably, your investor irrevocably waives those rights, then that company uh, will not uh, that investor will no longer be sort of considered an affiliated organization. So what I've seen is smaller investors seem to be willing, at least in some sort of anecdotal instances, to waive those rights so that their companies can be can be eligible for the payroll protection program. Larger investors seem to be a bit more hesitant to to waive those rights. What I've kind of heard on the chatter is it seems like uh, investors that actually have led the round and actually have a significant uh, control are a lot more wary to give up those rights. That brings up actually a really important point to to clarify even before we jump further into like sort of what we're seeing in the market, which is one is sometimes in investor agreements, particularly if there's a syndicate of investors, and this is perhaps a little bit less common with VC-backed companies, but definitely more common with PE-backed companies, is that an individual investor might not own or might not control a negative control or a veto right but the collection of investors together can control that sort of veto right. And one of the important things with affiliation is that if it is a collection of investors who are sort of arm's length apart, um, so think about it as two different VC firm A and VC firm B or private equity firm A and private equity firm B, and if together they can exercise negative control, that generally doesn't implicate affiliation. It is really more the idea that a single investor or a single VC fund or or firm has that sort of negative veto. So in a case where you do see a a syndicate or a collection of distinct investors who can act as a group, it doesn't involve affiliation or doesn't implicate uh, affiliation. In terms of what uh, I've heard anecdotally is that it seems like larger investors are a little bit more uh, weary to, to, to have their investees apply for or, or put themselves in consideration for the payroll protection program. And I've heard arguments around sort of morality, which is, is it moral for a VC-backed company to sort of go to the government and ask for support in this way? I've also heard some chatter around the idea that perhaps these investors are worried about sort of the public image or, or reputational damage of it being seen that they're companies are going to the government to ask for money. Thanks for that clarification. That's I, th- I think that's really helpful. Now, does the affiliate rule only concern those that maybe own like a certain percentage of the business? Yeah, absolutely. So the application itself, you see a few different ownership thresholds, which I think is perhaps where motivating your, your question a bit. So one, uh, as an applicant for PPP, you have to list any owner who owns more than 20% of the of the entity regardless of whether they're an affiliate or not or or not which also means that if you're if you're a company that's planning on applying uh that's one of the things that you'll want to go to any owner with more than 20 percent because when you list that owner you also have to list any other organizations they own again irregardless of whether they're affiliated organizations or not you still have to list it on your application 
The second ownership threshold where affiliation is directly involved is, is greater than 50%. So if, if the owner owns more than 50%, then you are affiliated to that owner and any other affiliated organizations or entities that that owner or investor uh, has in their, in their orbit. However, through negative control rights, there is sort of no minimum percentage of ownership necessary in order for negative control rights to activate or to implicate uh, affiliation. So if an investor, even with, I guess, theoretically 1% of ownership, uh, had the negative control rights outlined around blocking actions or, or, or what's more, I think, colloquially referred to or, or thought of as sort of vetoing day-to-day -day operations, uh, that would that would uh, implicate affiliation. I had one investor reach out and just curious if you see like any potential change regarding PPP eligibility, we're really specifically speaking to the affiliate rule. For a little bit of a timeline, the bill was signed into law on March 27th, which was a Friday. Under the bill, they, they the bill authorized or, or wanted Treasury to make the loans within a week. On April 3rd, the application theoretically was open. Uh, I say theoretically because many banks were prepared. Um, and, and that first week between when the bill was authorized and when the application opened up, there was a lot of chatter around affiliation and a lot of sort of conversations and a lot of work by various entities uh, related to venture-backed businesses to try to get affiliation to be drawn differently. As of the weekend of uh, April, Saturday, April 4th, the Treasury Department put out guidance that affiliation rule would be as it sort of traditionally has been related to the SBA. So at this point and in these times, anything could happen. However, what I'm hearing, what I'm seeing and what's been communicated so far, I it sounds like the affiliation rule is probably going to continue to stand where it stands, which means that if you're an investor, even if you own less than 50 percent voting shares, in the entity. So if you're a minority shareholder, and if you have those negative controls, that will sort of enact the affiliation rule unless you choose to waive them. Got it. Wanted to talk a bit also about payback. Will business need to repay the loan? This is a great question. And it's a bit of a convoluted question and complicated question. At the highest level, if the business uses uh, the loan as it's intended for, which is for payroll costs, as well as rent, utilities, and mortgage interest, it is possible for the entire loan to ultimately be forgiven. It is possible, but not guaranteed. There are a few notable requirements that the business should keep in mind. One, if they make any layoffs or significant salary reductions, then that would reduce the amount that they're eligible for forgiveness. The thinking behind that role in particular is that the point of this program is to help employees stay employed. And so the idea was that to effectuate that intent or purpose, that if employees are laid off or if employee salaries are significantly reduced, then the amount eligible to the business is, is, is reduced as well. Additionally, there is a cap on the amount of non-payroll costs that can be eligible for forgiveness. So let's say that you were only 50% of the overall loan amount went to payroll costs, but the other 50% went to paying your rent. That wouldn't be allowed. Under the rules of the ultimate forgivable amount or forgiveness amount, only uh, up to 25% can, can go to non-payroll costs. 
Another sort of component, and we're still waiting on specific guidance from the Treasury Department, but if you look at the underlying text of the bill that was passed by Congress, is around the idea of what happens if you had to lay off an employee uh, or if you had to make a significant salary reduction, but then in a month or two, you're able to bring that employee back, hire them back, or you're able to increase their salary. And while normally a, a layoff or a significant salary reduction would count against or reduce the amount that the borrower could receive in forgiveness amount, the way that the underlying uh, statute is written is that if that action, that negative action, the layoff or the salary reduction happened before uh, end of April, and if that sort of uh, employee was hired back or the salary was restored back to the original amount by end of June, that they would continue to be fully eligible and it wouldn't negatively impact the forgiveness amount. One thing to note is that the language in the underlying statute seems to imply that you would have to hire back every person you laid off or make full all of the salary reductions. So if you laid off two people, only hired back one person, the statute seems to suggest or imply that you wouldn't be eligible for the restoration under that situation. It's possible that Treasury might pass guidance in the coming weeks that that would change that. So that's just something and another reason just to try to keep apprised of the latest information. And, and how can you do that? Because if you're a small business owner trying to navigate through this really uncertain world, well, once you have a loan, I would encourage you to stay in touch with your lender and ask them how they're thinking about forgiveness and how they're going to evaluate forgiveness because ultimately that will be the person through which or the entity through which you ultimately apply for forgiveness is through the bank that issued the the loan and then they will sort of be the conduit to the federal government to actually get that forgiveness approved. So are all payroll costs eligible? This is an area that's even evolved over the past two weeks. In the simplest terms, and very few things with PPP are, are, are that simple, is I would encourage any applicant to think about it as sort of two different categories. There's cash compensation and non-cash compensation. What do we mean by cash compensation? compensation? Think salary, wages, tip equivalent. Anything as well as likely leave time, anything where you're likely to get paid on sort of a monthly or, or, or daily basis in cash or, or direct deposit, that's one category. The second category is non-cash compensation. These are what we usually refer to as benefits, health care, uh, insurance, state and local taxes that the employees might that the employers might pay. And so the split in eligibility is across those lines. For any individual employee, only $100,000 annualized or approximately $8,333 a month of cash compensation is eligible. So if you have an employee that makes $200,000 a year, when you both apply for the loan and the size of the original loan, as well as the forgiveness amount, it's capped at, capped out at sort of an annualized maximum of 100000 with that said, non-cash compensation, so think insurance, premiums, state and local taxes, et cetera, there is not a similar cap in place. So it's really important, particularly if you have any employees who are making more than 100000 in cash uh, compensation per year, that you, that you keep that in mind as you're applying for the, the payroll protection loan. 
Got it. Got it. That's that's really helpful. Uh, and I, I want to know as well what does what does the good faith certification of necessity mean? So there's a a series of certifications that a borrower or or think of this as like a small business or startup owner has to make when they fill out the application. One is around the idea of where you'll use the funds that you'll use to pay payroll costs and rent and utilities and mortgage interest. Another is around sort of the necessity of the loan. Specifically, what the applicant agrees to is that, in quotes, the current economic uncertainty makes this loan necessary to support the ongoing operations, end quotes. And so this is commonly or colloquially referred to as the good faith certification. And by making this certification, the borrower or the, or the small business owner is potentially opening themselves up to potential criminal exposure under the False Claims Act if that's not in fact the case. The idea behind this provision is that uh, a business should only be in a, should only apply for the payroll protection program if they've been sort of impacted by the current economic uncertainty. Think COVID nineteen and, and the world that we're currently living in, living in as of sort of mid mid April. There's a bit of uncertainty about what does it exactly mean to, for it to be necessary to support ongoing operations. It's not definitively defined. And so I think this is where it comes to a sense of thinking of the spirit of the law, thinking of the intent of the law, and what I've even recommended to to a few businesses I've talked to is sort of think about the front page rule, which is if you don't if you wouldn't feel comfortable giving this sort of state of your business, having it put on the front page of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or your local town newspaper that you took the money given that you had X million of dollars in the bank, hypothetically, then probably this is something that you should think twice about before doing. So Zach, are there any other things that come to mind that folks should be mindful of going forward? PPP is a novel program. It's a new program. And so the facts on the ground are changing by the day. So a few things to to watch out for. One is the overall amount of money available. As we're recording this, the initial $350 billion allocated has been nearly exhausted. And while there's indications that additional funds will be uh, appropriated, that is something to be mindful of as, as folks move forward. Additionally, is to be mindful of the specific guidance around forgiveness. Forgiveness is complicated and the specifics haven't fully been defined yet, so it's important to stay apprised of those. And lastly is any additional details that might come down around the good faith certification of necessity. As that gets spelled out, more clearly, or if that gets spelled out more clearly, that could impact a company's eligibility. Yeah, I mean, those are certainly great things to consider. I mean, it seems like the one thing that is consistent with PPP is that it's evolving and changing with each day. So where can a business apply for this program? There are currently a little over 1,800 eligible banks where you could apply. These initially started as the banks who've traditionally been able to make SBA or this type of SBA loans, SBA 7A loans. With that said, there are several banks that are currently applying towards it, and particularly several sort of fintech disruptor uh, banks. My suggestion is start with the bank where you've an existing uh, relationship. So if you're currently a, a customer of your local credit union or of Chase or of Square, I would suggest sort of starting there and see if they're making these banks and see if they're willing to make, uh, see if they're making these loans and see if they're willing to make a loan to your to your company. Certain banks, particularly certain of the larger banks had restrictions where even if you had an account, if you didn't have an existing lending relationship, they might not 
uh, consider your application. If your existing relationships either can't or won't make you this, this loan or won't consider your application, then I'd consider reaching out uh, to some of the, the sort of fintech players, Cabbage, PayPal, Square, QuickBook Capital. Those are all some of the newer entities that are, that are starting to make the, this specific type of SBA loan. That makes sense. Start with a bank where you already have an existing relationship, see if they'd be willing to make the loan, and then go from there. Zach, thank you so much for coming on the show and explaining PPP. This has been great. Thanks for having me on, and I hope this is helpful. And there you have it. It was such a blast having Zach on the show and helping to explain the Paycheck Protection Program. I really appreciate him coming on on such short notice. I really hope this was helpful. As previously noted, Zach also made a tool working alongside Alicorp for companies to understand how much government assistance they could expect to receive from PPP, which I've added as a link in the show notes. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, folks.